let's move now to our scripture passage. We're going to be in Ephesians 3. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, verses 1 through 13. Uh, let me read this for us, and then we will dive in. Ephesians 3, oh, and also, of course, it's on the back of your bulletin as well. It says this, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of the Gentiles, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit of God, uh, Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past has kept, has, or I'm sorry, was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms according to this eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, do not be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. The word of the Lord. Amen. So if you've been with us over the last uh, several weeks, we've been going through in kind of a very high-level view. We've been going through um, various passages uh, of Ephesians, particularly uh, in Ephesians 1 through 3. And what we've seen thus far is that in the book of Ephesians, there are, there are numerous things that the Apostle Paul addresses, um, but specifically the things that we have looked at is we looked at how, in the first week, we looked at how uh, God does all that he does uh, to bring glory to his name, that he might be known and seen as great to all, uh, and that he's done all of this, everything that he does and accomplishes, he does through the person and the work of Jesus, so that now, he brings uh, the Christian into relationship with himself uh, on an individual basis, uh, but he also brings individuals together to establish a new people that he calls his church. Uh, and that God has removed all of the barriers that existed between us and him, um, but he's also removed all the barriers that exist between uh, each other between the different people who may be coming together from very different places and backgrounds. He removes all those things so that now they might be brought together. And the church is this picture of the eternal results of God's redemptive plan over redemptive history. And in drawing people together for his glory and for uh, their good, this body of people 
is now unified. And this unity happens, uh, and it, it transcends the various cultural and political and ethnic and socioeconomic barriers that may have once existed. And as we looked at last week, this, I think, is one of the great apologetics for why the Christian faith is true. That the Christian faith does not prioritize centers of power, but rather it's a faith that works best, uh, and we see God worse, work most on the margins uh, because it refuses to stay culturally captive, and it works amongst people who might not otherwise be seen or known because in those settings, that's where God is most glorified. And that when the church, we looked again, we looked at this last week, that when the church becomes obsessed with power or becomes culturally captive, that church begins to lose its relevance and will eventually, inevitably, begin to die off and decline. And we saw all of this through the lens of the Jew-Gentile relationship uh, in chapter 2. Now here in our passage today, Paul continues his thoughts on the inclusion of the Gentiles into the promises of Israel, and this inclusion that he describes, he references it as, in verse 6, he references it as a mystery. Then he says that the former generations had not known the extent to which this inclusion would take place, because no one understood how the inclusion was going to actually happen. The manner in which the Jews and Gentiles uh, were brought together into fellowship, according to Paul, was a mystery. Now, that's interesting to me. Why is it that it's such a mystery that they've been brought together? And why was there so much uncertainty about how this inclusion, about the Jews being welcomed into uh, fellowship with the, with, the, uh, with the Gentiles being welcomed into fellowship with the Jews, why was this so uncertain? And then, of course, why then is it worth us understanding the gravity of what Paul is describing? That's what I want to see today. And it's probably helpful to start here to frame the Jew and Gentile relationship. Uh, it's important to note that the first century Jews did not know how to accept the Gentiles. Uh, and we see this actually time and time again. Even the uh, Apostle Peter messed up how to go about including the Gentiles, so much so uh, that Paul needed to confront him on the way that he treated the Gentiles. There's this really interesting passage in Galatians 2 where you have Peter uh, who, again, think about the Apostle Peter. He was someone who had learned directly from Jesus for years. He saw Jesus die. He saw Jesus rise again. He had a sense. If there was anybody that knew best what Jesus was doing, you would have thought it would have been the Apostle Peter. But there was at least one occasion where Peter had taken the side of what, uh, what would be called the Judaizers. Now, the Judaizers were a, a group of Jewish Christians who believed that the Gentiles should adhere to Jewish customs because to embrace those Jewish customs was to then be a true and proper Christian. That was their mentality. And so the Gentiles inevitably were marginalized or ostracized or kept out because they did not fully embrace Jewish customs. And at least on one occasion, Peter took the side of the Judaizers, thus marginalizing these Gentile Christians. And in Galatians 2, Paul describes this instance where he confronts Peter on this injustice, on this borderline heresy, the exclusion of the Gentile people. 
So with all that in mind, why is it that, that when Paul looked at this inclusion, he saw a mystery? Why was it that this seemed so complicated and difficult that even the Apostle Peter got it wrong? And why even today do we often fail to witness the inclusion that we talked about last week? An inclusion that sees the tearing down of dividing walls of hostility. Why do walls still exist even amongst Christians? And why is it that we still at times see Christians assuming that their culture is the most Christian and therefore others must capitulate to that culture in order to be truly Christian? I wonder for any of us, if that sounds familiar at all. If not, I hope to maybe present to you why I think it's far too common that we may know. And I want to do that by just looking at three questions in particular about this this idea of inclusion and why it's so difficult. The first thing I want to consider is what is inclusion exactly? Uh, The second thing is why is that inclusion so difficult? And then finally, why is it then so important, though, for us to embrace it? Uh, So first, what is inclusion. Uh, It's interesting. So as a Western society, uh, we actually hear a lot about this idea of inclusion. Uh, As a culture, we we, um, tend to hear a lot about tolerance, about being inclusive, that we should at all times be tolerant of other beliefs and uh, of everyone's beliefs that are around us, uh, that there should never be any kind of exclusion, but rather constant inclusion. And to a degree, actually would... um, agree with some of that thought, Um, mainly the thought that people should not be marginalized or demoralized. There should not be prejudice against those who might be different. You know, in an ideal world, love would motivate all the ways that we interact with each other. Uh, Of course, we know that to, to not be the case. However, I would venture to say, and I would argue, that the inclusion as defined by our culture today is actually impossible. We can't actually have the kind of inclusion that we hear uh, often about uh, because it is impossible for people to always agree with each other and then incorporate the various ideas into their own belief system, often because various beliefs will inevitably come in conflict with each other. And even to claim an inclusive worldview means that you have an exclusive claim on that worldview. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. So if I, let's just say I were to say that there is one God who is only accessible through Jesus. Some might say that that is a very exclusive belief and that you should be more inclusive. But what I find to be ironic about that statement is that what's actually then being said is from the inclusive worldview, they would be saying my worldview of inclusivity is superior and greater to your exclusive view about Jesus, and you should embrace my view of being inclusive, and if you don't, then you'll be excluded. I mean, the irony of inclusion in this definition of inclusion, flying the banner of inclusion, is to actually have an exclusive belief about inclusion. And the reason why I draw this out is because having exclusive beliefs should not be viewed as a bad thing. We all have them. We all have exclusive beliefs about what we believe to be right and worth dedicating our lives to. The problem is this. 
The problem is deciding what beliefs must be treated as universal and which should not be treated as universal. And probably the bigger thing in my mind is what is the authority that one claims in order to hold the beliefs that they hold? Because we all have exclusive beliefs, but what's the authority? And where I think the culture, our culture gets it wrong is that inclusion is not about accepting all the beliefs of other people. That's impossible, and it ultimately reveals one's inability to think critically about a particular topic. But proper inclusion means doing the hard work of discovering the banner under which you are willing to exist even amongst differences with others. And our culture is getting further and further away from being able to do this. Let me give you an example of of what I mean um, by this, the banner under which we're willing to submit ourselves. Um, The U.S. Constitution protects our right to a freedom of religion. Now, this this idea of a right to freedom of religion is a very exclusive belief that is not held by everyone in the world. However, we believe that exclusive belief to be a good and right one, that no one should be coerced coerced into believing anything about any particular religion. And as a result of that, that produces an an enormous amount of diversity within our population in the United States so that a Christian, a Muslim, an atheist ought to all be treated equally as American because all of those groups have submitted themselves to this freedom of religion. And even though we may be vastly different than one another, we should be equalized by that banner that we've submitted ourselves. Now for the church, according to Paul, the Jews and the Gentiles should now be equalized. And they've been equalized not because they have been homogenized or stripped of their cultural distinctives, but because they have both submitted to the same thing, which was the lordship of Jesus. That was now the new banner under which Jews and Gentiles would find themselves. And in other words, they held the same exclusive beliefs about Jesus. So with all that said, then why was this a mystery? Coming back to this, why was that a mystery? Think about this. The church in its purest form, you can't put a specific face or skin color, or language, or food, or clothing style, or any other cultural expression on Christianity. It embraces different peoples. When we submit to Christ, it equalizes everyone. So again, that the Jews and the Gentiles are now one. The Gentiles are no longer second class, but now they've been made heirs together with Israel. And it's so difficult for us to be able to do this Because, inevitably, there are other things that become priority than the Lordship of Christ. And when other things, other than the Lordship of Christ, become priority, that's where dividing walls inevitably come back up. Which brings us to that second question, why is it so difficult? Why do we, time and time again, seem to not be able to get this right? And I think there's a couple thoughts that I'd like to give in relation to that. Human nature uh, finds it nearly impossible to embrace this inclusion that I'm describing uh, we, because we largely have a really hard time accepting other people from outside our fold, however we define that fold. We have a hard time accepting others. And the, historically, the church 
has been guilty over and over again of this problem of accepting those who may be different. Uh, And there's much that could be said, interestingly, about how Christians over the course of church history have treated those who are not Christian, but it's particularly striking how often Christians have been really bad at accepting other Christians and have gone so far as to marginalize and even persecute other Christians because this inclusion is so hard. This happens almost always, again, because something has become more important than Christ. Idolatry will keep Christians from embracing those deemed different, even if those people are Christians. Peter excluded fellow Christians because they were of a different culture and ethnicity, which revealed, at least in Peter, an idolatry and a superiority that at that moment was an affront to Christ, which is why Paul had to call it out. Because this is the first time, what we're we're seeing here in Ephesians 3 and things that have led up to it, it's the first time that the people of God were no longer identified by cultural markers. It was the first time that these walls had been torn down. It was the first time that extraordinarily different people were now equalized by Christ. And if you don't understand why that's a mystery— And why that's so striking, my guess would be that you maybe have never had, you've been somewhat sequestered and have never had to actually be in very deep and close relationship with someone that's very different than you. Because it's a lot of hard work. It's never easy. It's hard work to accept those that are from a different tribe, a different culture. And that's why we have time and time again as a church, and I'm talking about broadly, capital C, church, We've time and time again acted more like the Judaizers, believing ourselves to be superior even to other Christians. And history, again, has revealed this over and over again. You know, we we talked a little bit about last week some of the, the failures of the church and how those failures have um, been an affront to the gospel of grace. And for generations... Western Christians, I feel as though we need to at least address what's happened in Western Christianity because we are part of that even now, for generations have functioned a lot like the Judaizers of the first century. I mean, we could plumb the depths of the problematic things that have happened over the course of, uh, of church history, uh, and we could certainly rabbit trail on a lot of different things, such as, uh, again, we looked at some of this a little bit last week, but such as how colonial powers used the church as a way to westernize non-Western people because that was real, quote-unquote, real Christianity. Or how pockets of the American church used to get nervous. There was a lot of debate as to whether or not one should baptize a slave because if you baptized a slave, that might then mean you need to release them as being free because they were then Christians. And so laws were passed in order to ensure that slavery was perpetual even after baptism. You've also seen times the disturbing nature of why certain denominations exist right now, still. Why the AME Church exists, why the National Baptist Convention exists. They exist because Christians literally segregated from those who were different than themselves and forced these African Americans to create their own churches. They could not be welcomed together because Judaizers existed that were creating these new dividing walls. 
And even as I was been thinking about this, even the ways that we sometimes talk about different kinds of churches. You know, if you've been in the church world, maybe you've even heard the category of a high church. What does that even mean? You know, for, for some, to describe the high church is often to describe the white Western liturgical churches And by the term itself, everybody else gets categorized underneath it as somehow less than high. We could rabbit rabbit trail down all that stuff. We won't do that now. But for generations, especially for Western Christians, it's looked a lot like the Judaizers of the first century because there has been an assumption that Western Christianity was somehow superior to all others and I think it interesting that I draw all this out because you know, the Apostle Peter, uh, the one who saw Jesus rise from the dead, he got it wrong. The Apostle Paul, when he looked at the Gentiles being included, called it a mystery. The church, over all of church history, has time and time again gotten this wrong. Why would we think that we won't also get this wrong? Why would we not assume that even right now, in some way, we are getting this wrong? If the great apostles and the greats of our church's history have gotten it wrong, why would we assume that we are not also falling and failing in this way as well? We should assume that right now we have. We should assume that we will continue to get this wrong. And we should assume that whatever idolatry might exist that keeps us from being able to see others who are vastly different than ourselves as equalized in Christ, we should assume that that idolatry needs to constantly be confronted in us and in our church. We must do the hard work to work against it. The last thing, the last question then to consider about this is why then is it worth it? Why should we care about doing this? And I want to come back to our passage, particularly looking at verses 10 and 11. Let me reread that for us. Verse 10 says that his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's what I find to be super striking. And in everything that I've been, as I've been working through this passage, uh, this passage was particularly striking for me because, here's the reason, Paul is saying that the unity of the Jew and the Gentile was first a reason that Christ died, and second, it's so awe-inspiring that the heavenly realms are awestruck by it. The rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms are struck by it this inclusion that's taken place. One commentator, when looking at this verse, put it this way. He said, The church, therefore, does not exist for itself. It exists for God, for his glory. When the angels in heaven behold the works and the wisdom of God displayed in the church, their knowledge of the God whom they adore is increased, and they rejoice in glorifying him. I mean, think about what's being said there. This inclusion, this mystery that Paul is describing, the angels are struck by what is now revealed about who God is in this inclusion. 
Those that are in the presence of God are awestruck by this inclusion. How much more should we be awestruck by this kind of inclusion? And here's what strikes me about this, and this is why it's been particularly um, life-giving, I guess you could say, for me, is that the gospel is more than just about the individual person. This is an important thing to note. Um, It's striking to me that again and again throughout Scripture and throughout the New Testament, we are reminded that the work of Jesus is not just about individual salvation. It is certainly no less than that. The salvation of the individuals is certainly what Christ has come to accomplish. But I also believe that the gospel and the work of Jesus goes beyond just the individual. Look at verse 11. It says that it was according to his eternal purpose in Christ that this, all of this inclusion was accomplished. This eternal purpose was part, the inclusion was part of this eternal purpose. And when the gospel is limited only to individual salvation. Uh, some have called this Great Commission Christianity, which, where the goal is really only to see people converted, uh, which again is good and right. There's nothing wrong with that. That is the gospel. But the power of the gospel goes far beyond the individual, but actually impacts everything that is around us. The power of the gospel is for the full and complete restoration of the cosmos, And so because of that, everything is impacted by what Jesus has done in the work of the cross. There are some who would call this way of thinking uh, cosmic cosmic redemption Christianity, where believing in the power that the gospel holds extends beyond the individual, but rather impacts this entire fallen world, including the divisions all of this has been, is being restored through the work of Jesus. Uh, Anthony Bradley, who's a, a professor at King's College here in New York, uh, he had written on uh, cosmic redemption Christianity, this idea that, um, that the gospel is about God's kingdom and God's kingdom is about the restoration uh, of all things. And he says, as he's reflecting on that idea that the gospel is about God's kingdom and its impact, he says, as a result, as a result of this gospel, he says, black lives matter to God. Poverty matters to God. Gun violence matters to God. Racism matters to God. Divorce, child abuse, genocide, sex trafficking, all matter to God. All these things are gospel issues. And as we've been talking about here, inclusion and being a diverse people is also a gospel thing. You know, our salvation on an individual individual basis matters. But again, we must know that the gospel impacts every part of society, including these walls of division that have been too often built back up. Christ lived a perfect life. He died a sufficient death. He conquered sin and death in the resurrection so that now Jews and Gentiles can be saved individually but also brought together. I find it interesting. Jesus could have absolutely died, saved the individual, and never really cared much about this inclusion that's taken place. 
He could have absolutely died for individual Gentiles and Jews, and it never really could have impacted the way that they came together. But that wasn't the only thing he desired to accomplish. He wanted to see humanity restored back to its original intent, which was to be one people without those dividing walls. And the church has too often found it sufficient to only worry about the conversion of individuals. But I'm bringing all this up to us now on the cusp of us launching officially because for Redeemer East Harlem, that will not and cannot ever be sufficient. We care about the salvation of individuals But we also care about being a place where God is weaving together people who are vastly different than themselves. If you were to look around this room right now, I could name numerous dividing walls that would keep a lot of us right here separate from each other and that have historically kept us separate from each other. But I pray that God would help us be a church where those dividing walls no longer become division but rather we are woven together as a people, as a family, as a community, because we've all submitted to the same thing, which is the lordship of Christ. That would be my prayer for our church. That is what I hope that we are able to see and experience, that the gospel impacts all aspects of life, including any division that might come. And so with that said, just a couple points of reflection, some things to think about. I wonder... Uh, to what extent everything I just described uh, makes your spirit come to life? I don't know. For me, as I think about these kinds of things, this kind of inclusion, this mystery, um, I wonder how, how beautiful that is to us. Because it's beautiful to God. It's beautiful to those in the heavenly realms. And I wonder, is it beautiful to us? And if it's not... If that is not something that makes our spirit come to life, I wonder what might be causing us to not see the beauty of what God is doing in Jesus by drawing people together. And the other thing I would just say is, are we willing then to do the hard work of seeing his kingdom come and caring about all the things that God cares about, caring about the things that leave the angels in awe, and that reveals more about who God is. Are we willing to do that hard work? I pray that we are. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we thank you that you are a God of um, great compassion. Uh, You know all of the ways that we so often can get this wrong You know all the ways that we have gotten this wrong in the past where we have allowed dividing walls to separate us. Um, But God, I pray that by your spirit, you would help us to see the beauty of what you are doing, what you have done um, in the person and work of Jesus. That you sent your son to, yes, save us as individuals, but your son has also come and died that the dividing walls might be broken down, that we might experience unity even in the midst of diversity. And I pray that for our church, we would do the hard work of seeing that come to full fruition here in East Harlem. And as we now uh, turn to your table, would this table be a reminder for us that 
there was a great price paid to accomplish the things that we have just talked about and seen. And may that also nourish us and bring us life as we reflect again on your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.